see, find my notes here. All right, though, before we get into the Word, Pastor Hovey suggested that I, I take a few minutes and kind of give you all a bit of an update about what we have coming down the pike, what we're planning on doing once we get back to Ukraine. And so we'll go ahead and do that. <clears throat> um, in the very near future, I think most of you know we'll be leaving on the 28th of February. Um, we'll basically be flying from Houston, Bush Intercontinental, so not too far away from here. Um, we'll be flying from there to Frankfurt. Um, then we have you know, several hour layover. Then we'll be flying from Frankfurt to Krakow, Poland. At this point, um, that's the closest we can fly to Ukraine because Ukrainian airspace is still closed because of the war. Um, so we'll, we'll get to Krakow, we'll spend the night there, and then the next day, if we have all of our bags, we will then, um, we have some friends that'll be picking us up. Our, our friends will be driving us from Krakow to Lviv. If we don't have all of our bags, then we might have to kill a day in Krakow with jet laggy kids. And so we're hoping that doesn't happen. We're hoping we just kind of keep on going straight all the way home. Um, when we get there, it's, it's about a four hour drive to Lviv. Um, so on the one hand, not too bad, but there's a border crossing in there. So we might be on the border 30 minutes. We might be on the border for several hours. It's kind of a wild card. You don't know until you get there and see what kind of a line you're up against. Uh, but once we get to Lviv, we have an apartment lined up. Uh, our missionary partners over there are helping us out, getting a, a place for us to land. And so we have a place to live, which we're very grateful for. And uh, that'll probably be our home for at least the first um, year of our time there in Ukraine. So anyway, so that's, that's kind of the very, um, the, the near-term future. Uh, once we're settled in, uh, then we'll be able to turn our attention back to ministry. And as I've talked about in the past, our main ministry is an evangelistic correspondence course that we call Bible First. Uh, initially, it was just a paper course. People took it through the mail. Um, but we eventually felt the need to get it online and have the ability for people to, to study the, the course online. Um, so we started working on a website several years ago. It came online, and we've been using it. It works. Um, it's still a little rough. Uh, so goal number one would be to kind of get some of the, the final functionality added to the website and kind of bring the, the website experience up to what um, people have come to expect from websites in our day and age. Uh, goal number two is then to use the website to reach as many people as possible. As a rule, on an everyday basis, we're actually not doing a whole lot to, um, to promote the course. Uh, people are still signing up, but it's because they've heard about it from friends or they happen to hear about it through a Google search or something like that. And actually, just the other day, because I was curious, felt like there had been a lot of um, requests coming through to sign up for the course. And I went back, and in the past 30 days, there had been about 15 people that had signed up. So about every other day, somebody signs up uh, for the course because they're interested in studying the Bible. So that's, that's encouraging, um, but there could be more. Uh, we, we could be doing more. We could be reaching more people. So goal number two would be to start using, presumably, online advertising to put the word out even farther and find more of the folks out there that are interested in studying the Bible, and then work with those people. So I, I like to, I kind of like to think of the, our Bible First website as a bit of a homemade race car. Um, we've built it. Uh, it works. It's running. We've kind of taken it around the neighborhood, uh, but it needs a little bit more work before it's really ready for prime time. And uh, eventually, the goal would be to get out of the neighborhood and get it onto the racetrack and actually let this thing do what it was designed to do. Um, so that's kind of what we're looking at right now, but things have also, also changed a lot since we left Ukraine. When we left Ukraine, there was not a war going on. Now there is. And so there's a lot of uh, needs and opportunities 
in Ukraine that were not there when we left. So it's quite possible that God might have some new doors uh, for ministry that he'll be opening once we get back. Um, speaking of the war, um, there is a war being fought in Ukraine, as I'm sure you all know. Um, but Ukraine is a big place. It's almost as big as Texas. Um, and as we know, just because something's happening in one part of Texas doesn't mean it's happening everywhere in Texas. You know, you might have Hurricane Harvey dumping water on your head in this part of Texas, and in El Paso, it's blue skies and sunshine. Well, we are, we're not going to the Harvey side of, of Ukraine. We're going to the El Paso side of things. Um, and so um, we're, we're going to a part of Ukraine where life continues on essentially unchanged as it did, or you know, as it was before the war started, with the exception of the occasional missile strike. Um, so, uh, but to put things in perspective, in our area of Ukraine, uh, since the beginning of the war, 10 times as many people have died in car accidents than have died in missile strikes. So while there is a risk, it's not really very big. Um, if you haven't been staying awake worrying about us as we're driving on Houston freeways to and from church, um, you probably shouldn't worry too much about our, our safety in Ukraine. Uh, that said, the risk of missile strikes is greater than zero, so, you know, feel free to pray for us now and then. Um, but on, on, on a, you know, I don't know, if a more serious level or whatever, but for every missile strike, there will be multiple air alerts. Um, these, unfortunately, usually happen at night, and so Caitlin and I will on a semi-regular basis probably, I don't know if it's, you know, what it averages out to be once a week or something like that. We'll probably get woken up in the night by the apps on our phone saying there's an air alert, there's missiles in the air, and so we'll have to, you know, get up, assess the situation, find out where the missiles are, find out where they're heading, and try to make the, uh, the call on whether we should wake up all the kids and take them to the bathroom, which camping out in the bathroom is because there's no windows in the bathroom. Uh, kind of like a tornado, you know, if there's a tornado, you want to go to a, a room with no windows. And so same thing with, with missile strikes. So, um, so there will be days when mom and dad will be tired and cranky because we've been up for a couple of hours in the middle of the night, you know, keeping an eye on the situation, waiting for the all clear. And then there'll be days when the whole family's tired and cranky because the whole family got woken up and drug uh, out to camp out in the bathroom for, for a couple of hours. So that, that's something that you, another thing you can be praying for because while it's, it's highly unlikely that our family would ever personally be impacted by a missile strike, pardon the pun, um, that was not intentional. <laughs> uh, while it's unlikely a missile strike will ever affect us personally, these nighttime air raids will affect us. That is going to be something that we're going to have to deal with. Um, we, wish, we wish there wasn't a war going on. We wish that we had a better idea for what the future holds, uh, but we don't. So we either go back or we don't go back. Either way, we have to live with whatever decision we make. And we feel like, while there is a very small level of risk, if we don't go, that at some point in our life, we will look back at ourselves and, and regret making that decision to, to stay where it is um, safe, or at least presumably safe, safer. Um, there is a need. Um, and we know the culture, we have the experience and the connections, we know the language, and we feel like God's leading us back to Ukraine. So, so we're going. So that's that. Um, we also have recently got a new family picture made, 
And so this is our, our prayer card, has you know, everybody's names, and then on the side there is our uh, website address. There are some of these, we're out there opposite the bottom family, so feel free to pick one of those up on the way home. Um, there's not enough for everybody here, but there's definitely enough for every family to have one, for sure. So feel free to grab one of those, and then if you go to our website, there is a subscribe button on there. So you can click that, put your email address in there, and then when we send out updates, then you will get notified of those. So once again, feel free to grab one of those on your way out. All right, so now let's go ahead and um, I'd like to share some, some thoughts from the Word. Um, but before we get our Bibles out, I'd like to ask a question. Uh, we've probably all heard of the debate between those who believe we're saved by works and those who believe that we're saved by faith. So um, raise your hand if you believe in salvation by faith. Okay, wow, I think we might have some Baptists here. I mean, just a few, perhaps. Um, but what if I were to tell you that each and every one of you who raised your hand, that you actually believe in salvation by works? Well, you might say I'm crazy, uh, but I've got your attention now. <laughs> and before you write me off as a heretic, uh, let me go ahead and explain myself. Um, anytime somebody comes and proposes a new idea uh, and says it's scriptural, what should we do? We should open the scripture and see if the person has a leg to stand on. That's what the Bereans did. That's what we should do too. So let's go ahead and open up the scriptures and see if we can find an example of someone being saved by works. Now, I will say, uh, you know, feel free to pull out your Bibles. I'm going to be reading a lot of scripture here, kind of rapid fire, just straight from my notes. So if you want to try to follow along, you're welcome to. But if you need permission to just sit and listen, you have, you have my permission. So however you want to take it. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start with Adam. Now, if you think about it, if there was ever a person who had the opportunity to live a perfect sinless life, it was Adam. I mean, where did he live? Paradise? Hello? You know, so many of the things that bother us, that drag us down, that irritate us, didn't exist there. Um, in addition, there was, there was no sin. There were no bad influences. You had no bad influences of your parents or your peers. There was no peer pressure. There was no uh, you know, bad advertisements. There was no worldliness, all that kind of stuff. Um, so if there was anybody, if there was ever anyone that had an, uh, a good chance at living a perfect life, it would have been Adam. Um, and in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Adam lived in a paradise, and he could remain there on one condition, not eating from the tree. Uh, back then, it was really easy to tell good people from bad people. Bad people ate from the tree, good people didn't. Very simple. Um, unfortunately, however, this was also an era of, not of grace, but of works. And so how did this all turn out? Well, we know the story. Uh, Genesis 3, 23 through 24, it says, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way to the tree of life. So what do we see here? Do we see salvation by works? Not really. It's more like damnation by works. Uh, what was the problem? It was Adam's works. All it took was one sin, and Adam was out of the garden, just like that, never to return. So, uh, didn't work out with Adam, so let's keep moving, see if we can find somebody else who is maybe justified by works. Uh, we'll skip forward to Genesis chapter 6. 
kind of look at, at mankind in general, fast forward, you know, I think like 1,000, 1,500 years or something like that, see how things are going. Genesis 6.5 says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Yeah. Okay, so maybe we're not doing so good here. You know, we started out with, uh, with one man who sinned once. That's what got us in this mess. Now we have lots of people sinning all the time. And when they're not sinning, they're thinking about it. So there's really not a whole lot of nice things that we can say about these people. Uh, and what's the problem? It was their works. They were doing wicked deeds. Uh, what was God's response? We see that in the very next verse, Genesis 6, 6 through 7. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. God got to the point to where he wished he had never created man. Must have been pretty bad. So, uh, seems like mankind in general is not doing a very good job living up to God's standards. So, so maybe instead of looking at mankind in general, let, let's, let's focus in on some of the more exceptional characters in the Bible. Maybe we can find, you know, maybe some heroes of the faith or something. Maybe we can find somebody who was actually able to live a life that was totally acceptable to God. So let's, let's go with Moses. I mean, he's, he's, he seems like he's a pretty good candidate. Um, we'll, we'll grab a story from Numbers chapter 20. And God is speaking here, Numbers 20, verse 8. God says, Take the rod and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother. Uh, Aaron, yeah, he was, he was also, he was the first high priest. He's a very godly, um, sanctified person. Um, Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. And then skipping down a few verses, And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote of the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Was Moses a great man of God? Yes, he was. Uh, was he a hero of the faith? Yes, he was. Were his works perfect? No, they weren't. All it took was one transgression, and Moses was disqualified from leading the children of Israel into the promised land. And later on in Moses' life, we read an exhortation of his to Israel, no doubt speaking from personal experience. <clears throat> uh, Deuteronomy 4.1 says, Now therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments. This is Moses speaking. Um, hearken unto the statutes and judgments which I teach you, for to do them that ye may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord and the God of your fathers giveth you. Moses said, if you're going to go in, you have to obey. If you don't obey, you can't get in. It's very simple. All right, so now let's turn to 1 Samuel 15 um, and read about another character in Scripture. This is somebody who gets a little bit of a bad rap in Scripture, um, and it's somewhat deserved, uh, maybe very deserved. Uh, this is Saul, King Saul. Uh, but you have to remember that King Saul was not just some random guy off of the street. The children of Israel wanted a king, and God himself handpicked Saul out of the entire nation of Israel. So God apparently felt like Saul was a good candidate to lead his people in the ways of righteousness. 
And everything went well for a while, but then um, God told Saul to completely destroy the nation of Amalek, and we know the story. Uh, 1 Samuel 15, verses 9 through 11, it says, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. Once again, what's the problem here? Saul didn't obey the Lord. It was as simple as that. Had he obeyed the Lord, no doubt he would have had a long and prosperous reign. His son Jonathan would have been king after him, and we never would have heard of David. But that's not what happened. And speaking of David, David had this to say in Psalms uh, 24, 3 through 5. He's, he is asking a question here, and he says, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? Ah, he that has clean heart or clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing of the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, despite the fact that David was a man after God's own heart, did David have clean hands? No. <laughs> David had blood on his hands. David murdered one of his best, most loyal officers, so he could take his wife. Yeah, so um, this is getting a little depressing here. Um, we've gone through a lot of the Old Testament, and we see a general failure to live up to God's standard, to qualify for heaven on the basis of works. So let's skip ahead and see if we can find uh, someone, anyone who is able to completely walk in obedience to God for their entire life. So let's turn to, say, you know, the book of Luke. You see, there was this little baby that was born. There was a lot of fanfare about his birth. Uh, seems like maybe he's going to be somebody special. You know, you may, may have heard of him. His name's Jesus. And this takes place um, later on in his life. Or we, we'll go ahead and open to Luke uh, 2. Uh, this is when he's 12 years old. Um, it's right after they went to the... Uh, to Jerusalem for the Passover, and he kind of went AWOL. His parents finally found him in the temple. He was talking to the theologians of the day about the scriptures. I can think of worse things for a young man to be spending his time on. Um, so uh, Luke 2, 51 through 52 says, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. Wow, that's, that's pretty good. That's more you could say about me when I was a 12-year-old. I mean, I, I was a pretty good kid, but I was not always subject to my parents. So yeah, this Jesus, he's, he's off to a pretty good start. It says, but his mother kept all these sayings in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Okay, so yeah, this, this is looking pretty good so far. So, um, but, 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 you know, Jesus is just a kid. Um, puberty's about to hit, hormones, all that teenage stuff. He's about to become an adult. He's going to be able to make his own decision. You know, how is this all going to go down? Well, um, the next time we encounter Jesus, he's now 30. The Bible skips over his teenage years and his early adult years. And so the next time we, we see him, he's, he's going to the Jordan River to get baptized. And that's what it says there in Luke 3, 21 through 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Ghost descended in bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. 
Yeah, that's an endorsement I'd like to get. Jesus had successfully navigated the teenage years, the young adult years. He'd avoided all the pitfalls that we all tend to fall into, whether we're young or otherwise. And God was not just pleased with him. God was well pleased with him. But surely someone with this kind of an approval rating from God the Father is going to attract some negative attention from the dark side. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, it says, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being 40 days tempted of the devil. Uh-oh. The devil himself is coming after Jesus now. How is this going to go down? Will Jesus be able to stand in the face of ultimate evil? And it's interesting that when the devil tempted Jesus, there's a lot of parallels between how he tempted Jesus and how he tempted Eve. It's Strategy hasn't changed much, maybe because it didn't need to. All of us humans, we tend to have the same weaknesses, and so the devil just kind of, hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So he started with food. Now, as middle-class Americans, we kind of might not think that food would be that tempting. Uh, most of us, you know, you know, we get hungry from time to time, but probably most of us don't really know what hunger really is. Um, but you have to remember that Jesus had been fasting for 40 days at this point. And so I, I submit unto you that Jesus, in that moment, probably wanted to eat more than you've ever wanted anything in your entire life. And the devil's like, here, you can just take these stones, turn them into bread, and, and put something in your tummy. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do that. It's not time for me to eat yet. I will obey the Father, and I will eat when he gives me the green light to eat. So then Satan um, tempted Jesus with something that was attractive to the eyes. But he didn't just tempt him with a tree of knowledge of good and evil or, you know, a new pickup truck or some new clothes or something like that. He, he tempted him with everything. He said, look at the world, all the kingdoms thereof, everything. I will give it all to you if you'll just fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, no, I'm not. That's wrong. That's against what God says, I am going to do what's right. I will stand for the truth. And finally, the devil tempted Jesus with a shortcut to glory. He took him to the top of the temple and he said, if you just jump off of this temple here, the angels will catch you. They'll lower you down to the ground. All the Jews will see you coming out of the sky in the temple courts and they will receive you as Messiah and you will be the hero. Everyone will come. Everyone will follow you. Everyone will think you're great. If you stay on the path you're on right now, it's not going to end well. People all will get angry with you. They will reject you. They will eventually nail you to a cross and they will kill you. So let's do things the easy way. Let's, let's, let's just take care of it right here and right now. Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do things the Father's way, even if that's the hard way, even if that involves more pain, even if that involves more suffering. I will do what is right. Jesus remained obedient to God in the face of likely the most intense temptation ever known to man. And later in his life, um, Jesus said in John 14, 30, he said, Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. See, there was nothing in Jesus' life. There was no darkness that the devil could kind of like catch a hold of. Uh, Jesus was not the man of steel. He was the man of Teflon. Nothing spoke, uh, stuck to him. He was like Daniel. You know, when, when Daniel's enemies tried to find something that he had done that was wrong, they couldn't find anything. There was nothing to find. There were no skeletons in Jesus' closet. He was the perfect man. 
Matthew 17, 5, um, this is after three years of public ministry, we see that God's opinion of Jesus has not changed. Matthew 17, 5, while he yet spake, uh, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. So almost word for word, what God said about Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. And then at the end of his life, Jesus said uh, in John 16, 33, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Jesus overcame the world, he overcame the sin, he overcame the devil, he was the ultimate overcomer. Now, there will be some people that will say, well, you know, this is just Jesus talking about himself. You know, as, as we all know, we tend to have a little overinflated opinion of ourselves. And so, you know, maybe Jesus wasn't this great. You know, let's, let's talk to some of the people that knew Jesus best. Like, what did they have to say about Jesus? Well, you have the Apostle Peter. He was one of the 12 disciples. He knew Jesus pretty well. And when he was preaching to Cornelius in Acts 10, uh, verse 38, he said, uh, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. What did Jesus do when he was on the earth? He went around doing good. Okay, yeah, that's pretty good. And then John. John was also one of the 12 disciples and arguably maybe one of Jesus' closest friends. Uh, what did he have to say? First John 2, 1, he says, My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You know, if you look in the history books, there's a lot of uh, people in there. And certain people were known for certain things. And some of those things became associated with their very name. For example, you have Ivan the Terrible. You have Peter the Great. But you also have Jesus Christ the Righteous. Now, of course, that's, that's what the apostles thought, and, you know, they're just men. You know, man's opinion doesn't matter as much as God's opinion. So what does God say about Jesus? Well, we see that in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. <clears throat> Here you have God the Father speaking to God the Son, and he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Thou hast loved righteousness. I like righteousness. I maybe even love it a little bit. Probably not as much as I should. But why is this such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal that Jesus was righteous? That Jesus fulfilled the law, that he walked in complete obedience to the law? Well, the answer to that is in Romans chapter 2, verse 13. It says, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. If you want to be justified, you must do the law. Uh, it's that simple. And that's what Jesus did. He fulfilled the law and he was justified. He earned the right to enter God's perfect heaven, fair and square. He played the game as a human being, he played it by the same rules that we have to play it by, and he overcame. So, finally, we found someone who was saved by his works. Problem is, is that it hasn't worked out for all the rest of us. Uh, you see, it's not enough to, to have the law, to know the law, 
to approve of the law. Uh, you have to do the law. You have to be perfect. That's all. Just perfect. Um, Romans 2, 6 through 8 says, um, who, or speaking of God, God will render God will render to every man according to his deeds. So, you want to be saved by your works? You just have to do good deeds. God will reward you according to what you do. To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, they will get eternal life. We see Jesus right there in that verse. What did Jesus do? He patiently continued in well-doing. That's what he did, and he earned eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. And that's you and me. That's what we have earned by our works, is indignation and wrath. So now on the one hand, we have the overcoming Son of God. And on the other hand, you have the rest of us. On the one hand, you have Jesus, the carpenter, the man from Nazareth, who earned a seat at the right hand of the Father. And on the other hand, you have the rest of us. It's too late for us. All we've earned is God's indignation and wrath. The wages of sin is death. But that's not the end of the story. Hebrews 5, 8 through 9 says, Though he were a son, speaking of Jesus, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Eternal salvation. Yeah, that sounds like something that we need. Sounds like something America needs, that Ukraine needs, that the world needs. But what did that verse mean when it talked about Jesus being made perfect? I mean, wasn't Jesus always perfect? I mean, had he not always been obedient to the Father? Well, yes, he was, but Jesus was not always the perfect offering for sin. See, uh, in the Old Testament, sin was paid for with lambs. They were usually about a year old. And for a lamb to be eligible as a sacrifice to save someone from sin... It had to be spotless. But there's another condition, if you think about it. The lamb also had to be mortal. Like if it was like Superman and you couldn't kill it, then you couldn't shed its blood, it couldn't really pay for sins. Because you see in the Bible it says, without shedding of blood there is no remission. And um, if someone sins, someone has to die. In the Old Testament it was the lambs, but Jesus was not always mortal. He didn't always have blood that could be shed. In eternity past, when he was God Almighty, did before he had a body. But then once Jesus became a baby, the first condition was met. He was now mortal. He now had blood that could be shed to pay for sin. But it was still too early for the sacrifice. You see, it wasn't enough for a lamb to be born spotless. It had to remain spotless. See, in eternity past, Jesus had always been obedient to the Father. But when he became a human, he had to learn obedience on a whole new level as a human being. All of a sudden, he felt the pull of sin like we feel it. Remember Jesus' temptation. You know, after he'd been um, fasting for 40 days, he was hungry. The Bible says Jesus was, tempted, was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He felt the same temptations that we face. And so, in this new environment, Jesus learned obedience on a whole new lever, level. Uh, he, over time, by patient continuance and well-doing, became the perfect sacrifice for sin. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If you want to sum up the storyline of the whole Bible, you could sum it up with this, with this passage right here. God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin. Now that took several thousand years for that to happen, but eventually Jesus did come and he was walking around on the earth. Jesus, God hath made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin. That's why Jesus could take our sin. It's because he had no sin of his own. Why? Why did God do that? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That we might be made to be something other than what we are. That we might be made as righteous as Jesus. Now, it sounds a little blasphemous, but that's exactly what happened, folks. Jesus traded places with us. He became what we were so that we could become what he was. So all of a sudden, things are switched. All of a sudden, you have sinners in line to enter heaven and sit at the right hand of the Father. And on the other hand, you have the perfect Son of God with a cross on his back, standing on the road to Calvary. Why would God let that happen? On what basis would God let scum like us trade places with his Son like that? Romans chapter 4 says, uh, Romans 4, 2 through 5, if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. So, you know, if Abraham lived a perfect life, then, you know, he'd have bragging rights because not very many of the rest of us have been able to do that. But not before God. For what saith the scripture? Now, that's not how Abraham got his righteousness. How did Abraham become righteous? Uh, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Once again, here we see Jesus. Jesus worked. He did what was right. And at the end of his life, he earned eternal life. God owed him eternal life because Jesus had fulfilled his end of the bargain. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And that can be you and I. God came to Abraham with good news, and he said, Abraham, you need a son. You haven't been able to produce one. You've been trying for years, and it's not exactly working out. But I've got good news for you. I'll give you a son. Abraham said, praise the Lord. Sarah, get your purse. We're going shopping for baby clothes. Get some of those birth announcements. We need a gender reveal. You know, we've got a baby coming. We've got to get ready. God comes to us and he says, things don't seem to be working out so well around here. <clears throat> I see you aren't exactly able to produce the righteousness that it would take to get you into heaven. But I've got good news for you. I've taken care of everything. Jesus has already paid for your sin. And he will give you the righteousness that is necessary to enter into heaven. He'll trade places with you. It's all taken care of. I don't know about you, but my response was, sounds too good to be true, but I'll take it. Count me in. And that, folks, that is the gospel. That is the good news. And that is some good news, amen? So you see, you and I have been saved by works. It just, we weren't saved by our works, but by his works. 
Jesus' blood paid for our sins, and his work, his works imputed to our account are what allow us to lay claim to eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. See, the goal was twofold. Someone had to take our sin, and someone had to give us righteousness. In this case, the two someones are the same someone. We had sin that needed to be disposed of, and we needed the means to purchase, if you will, eternal life. So how does this happen again? What, what is the condition? What, what, what do we need to do to make this happen? Romans, once again, Romans 4, 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. See, everybody wants to do something. And what must I do to inherit eternal life? Maybe I can do some of this or do some of that. What must you do? You must do nothing. You must work not. And instead of that, you must believe. Believe that Jesus' death was enough to pay for your sins. Believe that Jesus' righteousness is enough to get you into heaven. And it sounds like it's a two-step process, but it's really not. You see, the people that are willing to take their hands off things are the people who believe that God will do what he says he would do and will actually perform his end of the bargain. They believe that God will justify them. You know, I don't need to mess with things. God's got everything under control. Those who don't believe, they keep working because that's the only hope they have. It's all up to them. Hebrews 4.10 says, For he that is entered into his rest, he hath also ceased from his own works. Hebrews equates not working for your salvation with rest. Surprise, surprise. Um, but I will tell you from experience, I haven't always been in this place, but I will tell you that resting in Jesus is a wonderful place to be. Trusting in Jesus is a wonderful place to be. Trusting that what I couldn't do, he is more than capable of doing. And actually, he's already done it. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, it is finished. Romans 4, 5 says, uh, once again, I think it's probably the third time I've read this, such a great verse. <clears throat> but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So there you have it. In one succinct, profound verse. You have salvation by faith, to him that worketh not, but believeth. And you also have the biblical version of salvation by works. His faith is counted for righteousness. If you believe Jesus' perfect works, his finished works, his historical unchangeable works are counted as if they were yours. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for everything that he did for us. Lord, we thank you also for, for you and for your goodness. We don't always understand why you do what you do and why you care about us as much as you do, and why you put up with so much at times. But Lord, we just, we receive it, we're thankful for it, and we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the provision that you made for us, and Lord, we pray that you would give us all boldness as we go forth to preach the gospel in our different corners, and we pray for open doors 
pray for your spirit to fill us and enable us to speak with the boldness and say the words that need to be said. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.